Yeah, as Chris said, my name is Jordan, and I think I got a picture real quick to explain a little bit more about myself. Um, my wife, I'm married, uh, six years, and my wife Jessica is a superhero. You'll see a picture of her shortly, <laughs> but she's a second grade teacher, and um, we were uh, we met at NC State in 2012, actually at a Bojangles on Western Boulevard, which is really, really romantic. So, and uh, I'm actually wearing the same shirt that <laughs> I am in that picture. I promise I have more than one. But anyway, but yeah, she's great. Uh, we work. We both live. In, I mean, we li- have lived in Raleigh since uh, we both came to state in 2008 for school, and uh, have loved Raleigh and just love the Carolinas in general. I'm on staff at Vintage, but I kind of have two, two roles. I also work with Acts 29, and as Chris said, you'll hear a little bit more about Acts 29 uh, here at the end. But um, it's pretty much just a church planning network that's focused on equipping pastors and uh, helping churches plant more churches. Yeah, yeah and I met uh, Chris through probably, I don't know, 13 months ago, 14 months ago through our Acts 29 monthly gatherings. We just gather once a month. Any pastor in North Carolina can come. It's a uh, pretty much just a time to encourage and equip pastors to keep going and uh even in in that vein like I just want to say you know before we get started that I'm really grateful for y'all uh church planning is incredibly difficult I'm grateful for Kristen and Chris and their leadership and your sacrifice it's just tough uh church planning is really hard but we really value you and uh we're so thankful to have uh a relationship with a church at the coast because from Kill Devil Hills all the way down to Myrtle. We've got nothing. So <laughs> we want a church uh, at, at the coast that we can invest in and get behind and be, you know, wind in their sails to, to keep fighting to make disciples um, in, in Wilmington. So we're really grateful for you. And it's a great privilege to teach. One of my favorite passages is Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, you know, I'm not sure where everybody is spiritually, but uh, Philippians is towards the back. You'll see um, the New Testament, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then um, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. If you get Colossians, you went too far. But Philippians 3, uh, 1 to 11, and let me read it real quick, and I'll pray, and we'll hop right in. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Try out the same things for you. is no trouble for me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray real quick. <clears throat> God, just thank you so much uh, for grace and mercy. And uh, even as we sang, uh, you know, no, we didn't even coordinate, Father, on the worship, but just uh, as we sing about grace and how clearly that is taught 
in uh, Philippians chapter 3 is just really fun to hear and sing about and then uh, learn from your word. So I pray for each woman and man in this room that they would be encouraged and equipped to walk with you and trust you more and know that you love them more than they could ever ask and imagine that they've give, you've given them grace uh, at the cross of Christ and because of his life, death, and resurrection. We can know you and walk with you and, and trust you uh, because of grace and grace alone. So pray you'd fill me with your spirit. And uh, God, I know I'm utterly dependent upon you. So I pray that you'd really show up and that I can encourage uh, brothers and sisters here in Christ and that they would leave here not thinking that I'm great, uh, Father, but that you are and that you love them more than they could ever ask or imagine. Ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite, uh, favorite portions of my job at Vintage is all the new people I get to meet with and rub shoulders with. It's actually one of the things I really love about church planning uh, is kind of just the heart and, and uh, the passion of evangelism Like if you, as you're growing. And uh, even coming from a campus ministry where every four years we lose leaders and have to kind of crank out new ones, you're just all the time meeting people, especially at the beginning of the school year with freshmen. And as I meet with people at Vintage or when I was on staff with Crew, uh, wherever I'm at, I would always meet with people and uh, you know, in the first five, ten minutes, if I don't know them, I try to get a look in, a glimpse into their theological beliefs, their worldview. And I'll always ask this really silly question, but it's a helpful question for me to know where they're at spiritually. I'll, I'll ask this. Hypothetically, say you were hit by a Go Raleigh bus in downtown, think downtown Wilmington, and you died and you floated up to heaven as if it's above us or something. I don't know, but, and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? Why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? And that's the same question that Philippians 3 is asking. What makes a person right with God? What reconciles someone to God? The theological term for, for this question is justification. What justifies someone before God? And the question itself assumes, right, that people are at odds with God. And that's exactly what the scriptures teach. In Genesis, uh, man is created good in the image of God, and they can know him and walk with him and trust him. But Adam and Eve fell, and we inherited uh, from them a predisposition, uh, a natural inclination to disobey God, to hear what he says but not follow it. And because we've all disobeyed God, we're enemies of him, according to the book of Romans, and we can't know him. We can't be in a relationship with him. So the question then is how can people be reconciled to God? How can my relationship with the Father be restored? How can I re-know God? And many of us, you know, I've asked this question, probably no exaggeration, probably a thousand times between my time on staff with Crew, which was six years before I took this job with Vintage a year ago, and, uh, you know, a couple dozen times now being on staff with Vintage. And it's really fascinating to me, all the different answers I, I've, I've gotten. Now, many of us would answer something that's really self-oriented. So you might say, you know, I'm a great person, or I go to church every Sunday, or I give a certain amount of my income, or I serve at this homeless shelter, or whatever it is. You'll notice that all those answers are really self-oriented which reveals there are at least two different systems of thought on how someone can be reconciled to God or how someone can be restored to a relationship with the Father. And the first system is, I am my own Savior. I save myself through things that I do. And the second, which is taught here in Philippians 3, is I am saved or I am made right with God by something that Christ has done. So which is it? Right? Is it uh, what I do or what Christ has done that saves us? Well, that's the exact question that Philippians 3 answers. So let's see what the Scriptures uh, teach. We're, uh, I'm going to start in verse 2, and we'll come back to verse 1 at the end. But beginning with uh, verse 2, if you look at your Bibles, 
Paul uh, starts with a really strong command, and even a little backtracking for Paul, right? Paul is just a follower of Jesus. Uh, he was a Jew, uh, became a Christian um, on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, if you want to read that for homework. And he's writing to other followers of Jesus, the Philippians, and he's currently in a jail cell uh, around 60 AD um, for his faith in, in Christ. It's just a little background. And in verse 2, though, Paul's writing to the Philippians, and he says, he begins with this, he, three uh, lookouts. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul is warning the Philippians to look out for this group of people called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were a group that taught that uh, Gentiles must first become Jews, obey all of the Old Testament law, and then they could be reconciled to God. And for read much of Paul, this was repulsive to him, especially in the book of Galatians, where he just hits heavy on, uh, you know, grace, grace, grace. And ironically here, Paul is using a play on words because Jews would insult Gentiles uh, often by calling them dogs. And when you think of dogs, don't think Randy Jackson, circa 2012, American Idol, it's enough for me, dog. Y'all ever use that gif, gif? I don't know what you said. But anyway, or, or my, you know, sweet, uh, fluffy, very masculine dog, Bentley. Um, don't think, you know, anything like that. When you think of dogs, this is just purely an insult, you know, in, in biblical times. And Paul is saying passionately, watch out. Watch out for anyone who would, to tell, who would tell you to trust in something besides Christ and Christ alone. And then uh, in verse 3, Paul contrasts verse 2 by saying, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul's saying there's been a role reversal, right? That those who rely on observances or their own personal performance for their relationship with God, they are the dogs. And those who have trust in Jesus, those are the true children of God. Those who worship by the Spirit of God, who make much of Jesus, not ourselves, and who put no confidence in, the, in, in our works, those are the true children of God. And if you look back at verse 4, if you look back at your, your Bibles, Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. And when you see that phrase, confidence in the flesh, it's just confidence in yourself. Uh, if, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul's saying, hypothetically, if anybody could be saved by their own self, their, their own works, it would be Paul. And then he lists his resume. Just like you'd, you'd turn in a resume for any job that you're applying for, Paul lists his resume in verses 5 and 6. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul lists multiple false confidences, false places that he could place uh, his hope, the places that we could place our hope as well. He lists seven specific things in verses five and six, but for brevity this afternoon, I've grouped these into three. Ritual, family, and morality. Ritual, family, and morality. And these are all ways the Judaizers were teaching the Philippians, uh, things that they were teaching them to trust in besides Christ and, and Christ alone. And theologians call these type of self-system uh, you know, salvation systems, legalistic, or you might hear them called legalism. Or as one pastor notes, uh, he says, legalism or works-based righteousness is the view that we can put God in our debt and procure his blessing through our goodness. Legalism stems from the belief that we will have to pry blessing out of God's begrudging, unwilling fingers with all sorts of observances and performances. And today, especially in the South, especially particularly in the South, people are still trying to get you to trust in ritual, family, or morality. So let's walk through this real quick. 
The first one, if you look back at your Bibles in, in verse 5, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. If you don't know what circumcision is, you can email me at chris.wilson at restoration.org, <laughs> and I will let you know. <laughs> uh, joking. But to Jews, uh, I could, they, they wouldn't let me do that advantage, so I was like, I don't know, maybe they would. Anyway, to Jews, um, being circumcised right was just an uh, external sign that you are a member of God's chosen people. This is according to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. You can read that for homework as well. It just said that every baby boy in Israel should be uh, circumcised on the eighth day of their life. And Paul is saying that he's been a part of God's chosen people since birth. From day one, he wasn't a late convert. He didn't convert from, uh, from paganism in, like in his 30s. He's like, from day one, I've been a part of uh, God's chosen family. So if the Judaizers trusted in the ritual of circumcision for salvation, their, their mantra was, I'm reconciled to God because I'm circumcised, what are some rituals that people uh, trust in today, in 2019? Well, this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that Christianity is true. I really, I mean, I love the Bible. It's so relevant. And there are all kinds of things that people try to get you to trust in besides Christ and Christ alone. You might have get, you might have got baptized as a child. You might have prayed a prayer at a camp. You might have went through confirmation. And you believe because you did this ritual, that is what makes you right with God. That's what reconciles you to him. You know, I have uh, close family members, close friends that I, if I asked that question that I asked at the beginning, why should you go to heaven? Uh, they'd say, well, I walked an aisle when I was 16, or I prayed a prayer at a camp, but they don't know Jesus. Uh, you know, they're not impacted by his life, death, and resurrection. They don't have a relationship with him. But now let me be clear. Uh, it's important here for clarity. If any of those rituals signified a, a, a time where you placed your trust in, in Christ, you had faith in Jesus, that's totally one thing. You know, if your prayer, if your faith in Jesus was express, expressed through a prayer, if your faith in Jesus was expressed through walking aisle, if your faith in Jesus was expressed through confirmation even, like, that's fine because you have faith and that's what matters. But if you believe simply the act of praying a prayer to camp is what makes you right with God, then you're putting confidence in the flesh. You know, if you believe that you're reconciled to Jesus because you got baptized, then you're putting confidence in the flesh. Or, or if you believe you'll spend eternity with Jesus because you went through confirmation, you're putting confidence in the flesh and missing the entire teaching of Philippians chapter 3, which is that we're saved by grace and grace alone. So number one, Paul argues that a ritual can't reconcile you to God. Number two, he says that your family cannot reconcile you to God. In verse 5, if you look back uh, at the scriptures, Paul says that he is from the people of Israel. As you know, this is God's chosen people. He says he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, this was a sense of pride because if you read in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Benjaminites were the ones who stayed faithful to Judah. Uh, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and this meant that Paul knew Aramaic as well as Greek, and he was uh, you know, studied under this special guy, which pretty much makes him like a private school insider Jew. And these are all people who trusted in their family or something with regards to their family or something with regards to their heritage to make them right with God. And there's a story in the New Testament that illustrates this. In John chapter 8, uh, the Pharisees, this is a group that relied on works, uh, they're having this interaction with, with Jesus, and they tell Jesus, Abraham is our father. Well, Abraham is the patriarch, right, of God's chosen people, and they're saying, hey, Abraham is, is my great-great-grandpappy. Like, my, my blood, his blood is in my veins. If anyone is God's children, it's me. But Jesus rebukes them and says, well, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did which we find out in John chapter 6, uh, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
And even as they ask that question, you kind of anticipate this long list of things that you're supposed to do. And Jesus responds with this. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the scriptures are clear. It is, it is those who know Jesus and, and trust in Jesus' blood who are reconciled to God, not those who have Abraham's physical DNA running in their veins. Or more simply, no one is a Christian by birth. No one is a follower of Jesus by birth. I was reading some applications for a Christian leadership program in Raleigh uh, a couple months back. It was the worst thing I committed to in the last year. It was like 30 minutes each. There was 15 of them. It's just laborious. But anyway, I was reading through them, and one of the questions was, describe how you became a Christian. And I was reading this one girl's, and the first sentence in, in her answer was, I've been a Christian my whole life. So I took it and I threw it in the trash. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I threw it in the recycling bin. But uh, no, no, I, I accept, we, we, uh, you know, maybe she understands the gospel. But I will say, right, like some, anytime somebody says something like that, I've been a Christian my whole life or I was born a Christian, I, I'm really curious if they understand the gospel. Because you may have grown up in a Christian home or been a father of Jesus for a really, really long time. You may have accepted Christ as a child, which is great. But there was a time in your past where you didn't know Jesus and today you do. And I, I don't even think it matters if you know the exact date of when you followed Jesus or accepted Christ. I don't know. Sometimes when I, it was somewhat, you know, May to July when I was 16. Uh, and I don't know when it, you know, I officially did. But, I, you know, I don't think it matters that you know the exact date, but that you know that you're in, right? Um, but so what might it look like, though, today for someone to trust in their family? What might it look like for somebody, well, I trust in my family for my salvation. Well, today this might mean I was raised in a Christian family. Or my dad, your dad might be a pastor. Your parents took you to church. Your uncle's been a deacon for 40 years. You know, your grandmother led Sunday school, whatever it might be. Uh, during my time on staff with crew, this is so funny. Um, you know, at the beginning of the semester, you just meet thousands of students. Any, any student will meet with you. It's, it's a little bizarre. They're like desperate for community. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'll, meet, I'll meet with you and talk to you. You know, it's, y'all start at UNCW. Like, reach out. They'll, if you buy them coffee, everybody will meet with you. But anyway, um, I met with this one student. I'll never forget. His name was Josh. And he sat down, and one of the first things he said to me was, my dad is the pastor of Covenant, Free Will, Holy Spirit, Pentecostal Reform Church. And I was like, I know, yeah. And I was like, I just want to see that on a T-shirt. Like, only XLs is all we have because we couldn't fit the. But, and I can remember, you know, sitting with a, sitting with a guy named Daniel, and he, and he still shared the gospel. I checked out. The whole time, I, I'm, I checked out mentally, and I'm like, this guy knows it. Like, I mean, he's, he's got all the adjectives, right, uh, in the church. Like, he knows it. And I completely checked out. And the, at the end, you know, if you know the Knowing God Personally booklet, it's this gospel track. Anyway, you get to the end, and it's like, which circle represents your life? And, and uh, it, the, I'll never forget this quiet student. He said, you know, I feel like I believe this in my head, but I've never surrendered to it in my heart. And I'm, like, looking off, like, at the other. And I'm, like, oh, gosh, like, I should definitely be here. And I just started praying for him and stuff. But anyway, it's, like, but because, like, you, I can't assume. I'm grateful for Daniel. I can't assume just because his dad's a pastor that he's a follower of Jesus. And, and let me be clear again. Like, all these have caveats, right? Having believing parents is a huge blessing, a tremendous blessing. Uh, you know, three amazing women. They're not, uh, two of them aren't family members. Pam Petrie, Jackie Kaiser, and my grandmother, these simple women from Lenore, North Carolina, had a huge impact on my understanding of the gospel, which led me to follow Jesus. But I must understand that Pam's faith, Jackie's faith, my grandmother's faith, can't save me. I must personally trust in Jesus. Or as John Stott way more eloquently put, God has no grandchildren, only children. God has no grandchildren, only children. So, number one, a ritual can't make you right with God. Number two, your family cannot reconcile you to God. Verse five. And lastly, our morality uh, cannot reconcile us to God. Verse 5b and 6, uh, look back at your Bibles. He says, as to the law, 
a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. <clears throat> so Paul says he's a zealous, blameless religious leader. Pharisees, they were the top you know, guys in Judaism. Uh, they were known for their strict adherence to Old Testament law. And they had taken the commandments of God in the Old Testament and actually added 613 pre-commandments, so they wouldn't even come close to breaking the actual commandments of God. And this is the key, though, and these are so prevalent in the South. They thought that God loved them because they followed the rules. And this false confidence, salvation through morality, in my experience, um, you know, by God's grace, I, I get to share my faith a lot. I've got a lot of bandwidth in both of my, my previous job at Crew and now at Vintage to share, share my faith a ton. And this is the, this is the false confidence in the American South, salvation through morality. There's actually a sitcom uh, about it. If you want to know what Americans believe, uh, the vast majority watch The Good Place on Netflix tonight. Just the first episode. You don't have to invest any more than that. And it's this like, you know, rating system, and it's just what they believe. But these people, they made up a, a, a set of um, you know, rules and regulations that they believe would make them right with God. They go to church because they believe good people go to church. And because they go to church, God loves them. You know, they, they'll give 10% of their, their income because they believe if I don't give 10% of my income, then God's going to smite me. And the problem with this, the, these, the problem with these, these people is that they are religious but not repentant. They are religious but not repentant. And they're huge issues, right, with thinking that you can be saved through morality. I mean, we could go the rest of the evening talking about issues with this, but the, the biggest one is that you're not nearly moral enough to merit salvation. People who think their morality will save them typically look really great on the outside, but inside they're utterly broken. Uh, more broken often than the ones that they are condemning. And Jesus comes, right, in, in Matthew chapter 5 and reveals a lot of this uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it say, uh, do not murder, like, which certainly means externally, don't murder one another. But then he says, also, if you internally, you know, slander, hate, uh, insult a brother, then you're guilty of, uh, uh, of murder. Uh, he does the same thing with adultery, right? He says, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, which certainly is externally cheating on a spouse. But he says also it's internally for those, uh, you know, who have lusted in their heart. And in Jesus' courtroom, both actions were guilty uh, of adultery. And the Pharisees thought that because they had all the external boxes checked off that they were in the clear uh, but Jesus is, you know, one of the most harshest statements Jesus makes in the scriptures is in Matthew 23, uh, verse 25, where he talks about this. And he, he says to the Pharisees, uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. So to illustrate this, uh, growing up, my entire family uh, had Jeeps. Uh, my dad had a Jeep. My brother had a Jeep. My, my first car was a Jeep. Uh, yeah, there's my brother thinking he looks cool with the shirt off there in the back. <laughs> and uh, it, it, my dad had an awesome orange one. I mean, it's CJ5. But anyway, it, it, my cousins had Jeep. I, everybody had Jeeps. And uh, being from Western North Carolina, if it wasn't a sports season, you didn't have a lot to do. So we went mudding. I don't know. I know we got one Western North Carolina guy. But, but uh, anyway. So if you know anything about Jeeps, they're awesome. You take the doors off, you're driving, it's fun, you know, getting three miles per gallon. But, you know, the, the other thing is, like, you just go, you, you go mudding, and then things break often, all the time, you know. And it was getting really expensive, and my cousin had been uh, mudding a lot, and his uh, dad came to me, he's like, hey, you've got to stop doing this. I want you to take a six-month break because it's getting too expensive. You know, different things were breaking. He's like, yeah, okay, Dad. But then one day, it came a torrential downpour, and there was this huge mud hole off of Zach's Fork Road in Lenore, North Carolina, just massive. And uh, you know, he, he went through the mud hole, and like there's mud everywhere. I mean, he, like even his um, windshield wipers weren't helping. 
And I can remember him finishing. He was like terrified. Like if my dad finds out I did this, like nothing broke, but he just he just knew he's gonna get in, in trouble. So he goes to like the spray and wash or whatever, and he spends like 45 minutes getting this thing immaculate. It looked like the first day he bought it. And he took it home, parked it in the driveway, and kind of walks in all arrogant, like, you know, he got off with it. And I can remember his dad coming home, and for some reason, poor timing for my cousin, his dad had decided he was going to change the oil that day. So he comes home, he lifts the hood, and what does he see? He has mud everywhere. And I don't tell you the rest of the story uh, from there. <laughs> but it, but it, it, the, the illustration is like he was trusting in the external cleanliness, right, of his Jeep to shield him from the wrath of his father. And often the people who trust in morality for their salvation are doing the same they, they're, they're trusting in their external cleanliness to shield them from God's wrath but the problem with God <laughs> I could probably word that better but is that he sees right he, he sees the inside of the jeep and the outside right he sees both and we need forgiveness uh, for both and the scriptures are clear even if we could uh, potentially um, <laughs> what was that <laughs> whistle yeah yeah even if we could potentially you know keep some of the internal and some of the external laws, like uh, James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law yet fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. So, you know, the point here is you just can't be reconciled to God through your obedience because you're not perfect enough, uh, you're not, or you're not perfect at all. Now, cultural Christians are guilty of this, and people in the South especially are guilty of this, but I also want to say, like, followers of Jesus, myself included, are, can, can be guilty of slipping into this, you know, this thinking that God loves me because of the things that I do. I'll tell you a story about that as well. Uh, my wife, Jessica, and I, don't, we don't have any biological children, but we've been doing foster care over the last two years. And we have no kids in the house. And then uh, one weekend we had two kids in the house, and it was just nuts. I know if you're a mom here, that's like par for the course. But for us, it was like just out of the norm. And I can remember one weekend just being really rough. I, I, I thought about even playing a video of one of the girls screaming. <laughs> uh, that probably wouldn't be appropriate. But anyway, and... Uh, so it was really, really a crazy weekend, and I had a, a big event the next, the next morning, the Saturday night, the next morning uh, at Vintage, and I can remember getting on my knees, and I, I was praying something like this, like, God, you know I have, like, this huge event tomorrow, and I haven't had enough or as much time as I had anticipated to prep and prepare, and I, I just really, God, I pray that you'd really, really make this go well tomorrow for your glory, and I tagged on this little line, and then I was like, I mean, I have been doing orphan care all weekend. <laughs> And it was kind of like this, whoa, you know, moment for me because I was like, I'm, I'm praying as if I can procure God's blessing through orphan care. And God doesn't want hearts that obey him in order to get something from him. Uh, God doesn't want hearts that obey him in order to get something from him. He wants people that just love him. And again, we cannot conjure up blessing through our obedience. We can't. Uh, I can't put God in my debt through 72 hours of orphan care. Now, I will say, again, for clarity, there's caveats to all these. Are there blessings? Are there benefits to obeying God? Absolutely. You know, if you honor God yeah, in terms of your taxes and you get audited, you won't go to jail. Like, there, there are benefits to, you know, obeying God. I'm not saying at all. What, but what I am saying is that we cannot put God in our debt through our meager, full of false motives, often for me, obedience. Like, God doesn't owe me anything. And as I was praying that, I was letting legalism creep into my heart. And the, the scriptures don't teach that God has to bless us if we do right things. Often, it's the opposite, right? I mean, you, you go through hard things uh, when, when you obey him. But uh, God will bless his children because of the grace and grace alone. As Tim Keller famously says, he says all the time, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you unconditionally. And I don't have any children, but I, I just know, like, 
that that's kind of like you can experience that as a, a parent right it's like i mean we can see that from the scriptures as well but it's like you love that kid like no matter what in the same way god loves us because uh, he loves us for those who trust in him so i hit paul's cleaned up my my prayer right and i prayed something like this i said god forgive me for supposing i could put you in my debt uh for for through my obedience father i am utterly dependent upon you upon your grace on my best day and on my worst day we are, we're dependent upon him always. I pray this event would go well for your glory. Uh, and then it went okay. So <laughs> he kind of answered. But anyway, so the three things that don't work. Number one, rituals. I cannot reconcile us to God. Number two, our family can't reconcile us to God. Number three, our morality cannot reconcile us to God. So it kind of begs the question, right, what can? If we're separated from Jesus, we cannot know him personally. None of these things will work. What's the solution? How can our relationship with the Father be restored? Well, that's exactly what verse 7 to 9 says. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss because of the surpassing worth. Or in, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And listen to this. Listen to verse 9. And be found in him. Listen not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul reminds the Philippians that there is one safe place to put your hope. There's one safe place to put your confidence, and that is in Christ and Christ alone. Paul says that we should repent. Now, this is just a theological word for turning uh, and turn from trusting in our work to reconcile us to God and instead uh, trust in uh, Christ's work to reconcile us to God. Look, look at verse 9 again. He says, I want to be found in him, not in myself. Paul is saying, I, I know I have to be found in Jesus, not in Paul, because Paul is unable to save himself. On my best day, right, I cannot perfectly obey God. Uh, you know, I desperately need the righteousness of another which is exactly what verse 9 says, right? In verse 9, if you look again, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Or more simply put, Paul's just beating home the theological truth that salvation is received, not earned. That salvation is received, not earned. Salvation is not through something that you do, but something that Jesus has done. And this is another reason, you know, I, I love just Christianity, the scriptures. This is another reason I'm convinced Christianity is true because anybody could have made up a theology, right? That's I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's everything. You throw an interception, football's about to start again, right? The, the quarterback will, will be benched. If you have several, you know, quarters you know, at work where you have poor sales, you'll get fired. It's just the way our life works. Like, if we do the right things, then there's approval. But Jesus comes, right, and he flips this completely on his, on his head. Jesus comes and completes, he teaches the complete opposite. He says that none of us have obeyed God perfectly. And since God is just and we've disobeyed an infinitely holy God, he should and will punish us, right? I mean, if I, I'm, I'm going back to Raleigh tonight on I-40. If I'm going 90 and a 70 and I get pulled over, and as the police woman, you know, approaches the, the car door, if she's just, right, I know I'm going to get hammered uh, with a ticket. But sometimes, like, we, we take those things truths, uh, and we look at God, and we just assume he'll let everybody off, right? But he's just, and we are guilty. So there's no hope for us to be reconciled to God on our own unless there's a substitute 
right? And that's where Jesus comes in. He lives the perfect life. He always obeys the Father. He never disobeys God. And then the one who deserves to live forever, forever dies for us. And then he resurrects to prove that he was God. That he has the f- authority to forgive us. And then he looks at you and he looks at me. It's one of my favorite things about the scriptures. And he says, anybody who comes to me and says, I'd like forgiveness, <laughs> gets, gets forgiveness. Anybody who comes to Jesus and says, I'd like mercy for disobeying you, he gives mercy. It's the one who thinks that they're you know, saved in themselves and don't need to be forgiven is the one that uh, he turns away. Well, not turns away, but uh, is unwilling to come to him is a better way to say that. But anyway, the, the gospel, as you see, is completely unique, right? This is why when people tell me, you know, uh, all people or all, all religions teach the same things. Uh, you know, I was at a brewery last weekend with a guy named Caleb, and he said that. And I love him and, and want him to come to know Jesus, but it's not true, right? If, if you genuinely investigate the claims of different religions, they don't claim the same thing. Every other world religion, stealing this again from Keller, <laughs> says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But Christianity comes and, he's, and, and says, you're freely accepted on account of what Christ has done. Therefore, follow him. Therefore, trust him. Uh, just the, the song that we just sang, you know, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, which will lead to in verse 10 and 11, uh, if we read verse 10 and 11, uh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's saying, if you understand grace, this, you know, I'm freely accepted, therefore I'm a, I'll, I'll obey, you'll grow. It's just a natural byproduct, you know, like, fire and smoke. You, you'll mature in Christ. You see, Philippians 3 doesn't tell us that we shouldn't obey. That's one thing you could mishear me uh, this evening. Philippians 3 isn't telling you that you shouldn't obey. It's telling you why you should. Philippians 3 isn't telling you that you should not obey God. It's telling you why you should. You should obey God because you love him, and you're blown away by grace. And if you look at the cross, and what, if, if it's really true that Christ died for me, that's unbelievable. He never disobeyed God. He never sinned. He died for me. Like, Man, I, really, I love him. Uh, this is amazing. So I want to follow him. Or, or as Luther you know, famously said, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Or more simply, uh, Jesus <laughs> says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in the South, we flip that, don't we? Like, interview your neighbors. <laughs> They'll say, if you keep my commandments, then I'll love you. But that's not God's orientation towards us, right? He's done, he, none of us have obeyed him. And he was crucified for that. He rose again, proving that he was God. And he says, I love you unconditionally. Now follow me. So number one, a ritual cannot reconcile you to God. Number two, uh, your family cannot reconcile you to God. Number three, uh, your morality cannot reconcile you to God. And number four, faith and trust in Jesus and his perfect life and death and resurrection is the only thing that can reconcile you to him. So uh, we, that question that we asked at the very beginning, if you got hit by a bus, stood before God, he asked you, why should I let you in? The only safe answer is because I have faith and trust in Jesus. So to wrap up, so what? What difference does this make Monday morning? I always love talking about this because Christianity works. <laughs> you know, it, it, it changes us. So the primary question is, where will you rest? Where will you rest? Uh, in your work or in Christ's work? So if you're a doubter or seeker here uh, or somebody who's unsure if Christianity is true, God wants you to understand that to be reconciled to him all you have to do is turn to him and trust in him. You know, if you're ready to trust Jesus where you are, you can just pray to Jesus something like, forgive me, I have faith in you, I trust in you, I want to follow you. And anyone who prays that, fair, uh, that, that, that prayer in faith and trust in him, 
becomes a follower and then goes on a life of you know maturing in christ um and if you're going to reject jesus you know if you're not ready to accept the truths of christianity then i would just encourage you would you investigate the claims of christ you know if, you, if this is your first time hearing that salvation is received by grace not earned by works grab a bible you know, read through the book of Ephesians. It'll take you a week <laughs> max, right? If you're a slow reader like me, uh, grab, you know, somebody here at Restoration and, and ask them to read, read it through uh, with you. And then if you're going to reject the claims of Christ, we just ask you that you would reject his actual message, not the cultural Christianity of the South that we've discussed today. And then to wrap up for followers, some ways that you might uh, apply this. Um, there's a million. I've thought of five, <laughs> uh, and we'll conclude that way. Uh, the first is just to know him know Jesus. And to do that, you just swim in the Bible every day, get in the scriptures, hear from God. Just like I work on the rela- my relationship with my wife by hearing from her, I want to hear from God. And the way I do that uh, is reading the Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read the Bible out loud. Like this is how he speaks to us, right? Read the scriptures. Uh, the second, uh, preach the gospel to yourself moment by moment. So easy will it be for your hearts and mind to slip back into God only loves me if I'm doing the right things. Uh, but you've got to preach the gospel to yourself moment by moment. Uh, Luther says, Most necessary is it, therefore, that we know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And it really is because it's so easy to slip back into thinking God only loves me if I'm doing A, B, or C. Uh, thirdly, preach the gospel to your children. I, I don't think Chris knows. I stole this from him. But um, uh, he posted this a couple months ago on Facebook. But it's this prayer that Kristen and him have doing, been doing with Ramsey. I thought it was so good to teach um, your children about unconditional love. Uh, I'll read the script. Um, do you know that I love you? The child says, yes. Uh, you know, the parent says, do you know that I love you no matter the good things you do? Yes. Do you, know you, do, I, do you know that I love you no matter the bad things you do? The child says, yes. Who else loves you like that? The child says, Jesus does. Parent, even more than me? Yes. Rest in that love. And that's, you're teaching your children what the gospel's like. Because God doesn't love us if we go to church. I mean, you should go to church, right? <laughs> go, go, come to church. <laughs> but not in order to make God love us, but because he does love us. And that's how you treat your children, right? And, and how much more uh, does God treat us like that? Uh, fourthly, hold the gospel out to your neighbor. Uh, if you interview 100 people in, in Wilmington and you ask them, what's the basic message of the Bible? They'll say some version of works, right? Uh, the mantra I've heard from an older man one time, he said, most people think Christianity is uh, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do, right? It's, it's just not the, not, it's not the truth, right? It's like, no, Christ has done everything. Love him, uh, which, but they don't know that. So they're rejecting a set of beliefs that's not the, the gospel. And then lastly, how God has treated you, image that to, uh, in Jesus, image that to others. Because God's been unbelievably generous, be generous, right? Should you give? Absolutely. But not because giving makes God love you, but because he loved you radically. Uh, come to church. Should you be brought in here? Absolutely. Come to church, but not because coming to church makes God love you, but because he does love you. And this is where you get to learn and grow and, and walk with him. And then lastly, since God has forgiven you a massive debt, maybe you could initiate a conversation with someone that you need to forgive. And again, these are only five ways. There's eight million <laughs> ways that we can apply this. But in summary, in summary, there's nothing you can do to merit God's love, restoration. There's nothing. Uh, he's done everything necessary. He's given you his love freely. As a response to that, radically obey him. Uh, let me pray.